Thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of Real Conversations about Aging Parents. You will recognize today's guest from a previous episode that aired back in July. We have Esther Greenhouse with us. She did the episode on environmental gerontology. Welcome, Esther. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me back, Rebecca. It's my pleasure. You didn't know this was going to be a twofer, right? When I told you I needed you to come on the podcast. <laughs> oh, well, but we had such a good time and there's so much to talk about because issues related to caregiving are both personal and professional for me. So I think two podcasts makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it always adds some depth to people when they're professionally involved with the kind of things you're doing. And I always think it's it's very interesting to peek behind the curtain and try to understand some of the dynamics that set you up for being interested in this topic. So with that said, I know our guests might be familiar with you from the other episode, but could you just give us a thumbnail sketch of your, your current life right now, anything you're into, hobbies, things like that? So I am an environmental gerontologist. I specialize in how the built environment affects the functioning and well-being of older adults. And essentially, my mission is to change the way we design and build so that we respect the lifespan and we enable people to thrive to the end of their lives. Personally, I am an empty nester. My son graduated from college a year ago and is living on his own. Up until a year ago, I was the primary caregiver for my mom on a daily basis. It was hands-on. And then our family and my mom relocated and my mom moved to assisted living. And then my role shifted. I was still the primary caregiver in the sense of being responsible for her and being her advocate taking her to doctor's visits, but I was not the primary caregiver any longer in terms of providing care on a daily basis or administering her meds. And, and then February 1st of this year, my mom passed away. And the past few months, I've been trying to readjust to no longer having that role. Thank you. And, and I want to make sure I come back to that adjustment. I think it's really interesting to speak to you while you're still in that adjustment period. And I think that is a, a really complicated time to go back to normal life, but then know what, what you just went through. So one of the things I'd like to do is if we were to develop a timeline, how far do we need to trace back when you first realized your mom may need some extra help? Well, it it probably goes back to childhood because my mother's mother lived with us until I was about five. And then due to the progression of rheumatoid arthritis and the negative features of the home we were living in, for example, doorways that were too narrow to allow my grandmother to, to, to use a walker in the house, my grandmother moved to a facility. And that really shaped my mother. My mother felt tremendous guilt over it. And she, every time she thought about her elderhood, she was terrified that she would have to move into a facility. And when I was 13, my father unexpectedly died of a massive heart attack. And I really had to step into the role of assisting my mother at that point, even though I had an older sister, she was already out of the house. So I, I knew I would be the one to take care of my mom in the future. And when, so that's at 13. So you became probably an emotional support, if nothing else, at, at a very young age. When in your adulthood did you start to think that mom was going to have some caregiving needs or that yeah. that was about to to escalate? What did that look like? So I would say, well, first when my mom was I'm trying, I'm trying to do the math now and remember how old she was. I think when my mom was around 67, she had a minor heart attack. And 
I was the one who flew out to see her. She was actually visiting a, a very dear family friend who was like a relative to us. And I stayed with her in the hospital and then I, I brought her home. And after that, it was clear that her medical needs were increasing and she was doing great. She recovered from that heart attack very well. She went to cardiac rehab, but there were other chronic health conditions. And so if she needed something like a colonoscopy or a cataract surgery, I came down and I took her to those appointments. And in, this is already where the family dynamics start to impact caregiving, which we can try to look at caregiving as something very practical. And it's, it's not. For example, my sister is six years older and she lived 45 minutes to an hour away from my mom. And I lived five hours away. And this but is where, what part of the country? In New York state. Okay. So my mom and my sister were both on Long Island and I was in upstate New York in Ithaca. There were a whole bunch of reasons why I was the one who came down. First, it was that I didn't have children and my sister did. But the fact is that my mother always turned to me and you talk about emotional support. Both my parents were sadly very wounded people. They grew up in Hungary and Romania during the Great Depression and then during World War II and then under Soviet occupation. And they literally walked across fields at night with soldiers and guards searching for them to escape to freedom and came to this country with nothing but the clothes on their backs <laughs> and started over. So tremendous amount of trauma that was never processed. And like so many people, the way my parents dealt with it was by drinking. You know, they drank alcohol to, to try to sleep at night. And in my mother's case with me, very early on, I would say when I was probably three, four, five years old, she was turning to me for emotional support. So that was the type of relationship. So looking back, it really makes sense that I was the one who became her caregiver. Do you know why she turned to you at that age versus your sister who would have still been kind of like school age? Is it receptivity? Is it personality? Is it what dynamic can you point to? That's that's a really great question. I don't know that we can put our fingers on things like that, but the way I characterize it is that I really believe that I was given to my mother to support her, advocate her for her, take care of her, give her the best possible life. I really think that, that that was God's intention. So where did that belief come from? Trying to make sense of really trying situations. So usually with beliefs, you either are handed a belief, like somebody mm -hmm. says, this is what daughters do, or this is what, you know, right. I'm going to, you're going to inherit a belief from somebody else, or you have right. like a de novo belief that you just come up with someday as a way to explain life. So my, I guess I know this is a, a critical element I'm always interested in. A lot of the beliefs and thoughts in our own head, mm -hmm. we feel like, you know, we, we've developed them, but sometimes they're actually just inherited. Yes. And so I know you saw your grandmother be cared for by your mother, but what's interesting, if we look at the siblings in the household, you probably have developed a very different belief set right. or system than your sister. Um, do you have any other thoughts on the origin of this belief that you were put here to take care of her? Well, one thing with my sister, and I want to be clear, I'm not being critical of my sister because we do what we can do. And sometimes people 
make choices and sometimes they do things by default. And sometimes it seems like my sister's reaction to the family dynamics, at least between me, my mom and my sister has been avoidance, you know, and it's very clear that my sister loves me and cares about my well-being and loved my mother and cared about her well-being. But she sometimes offered to help and my mother would say no, like, oh, well, you have two kids and, you know, don't don't take your time off to come and help me. But somehow it was okay for me to try to modify my life because when I, when I became a full-time caregiver to my mom, so when my mom was around 80 and I was around 40, my mom moved next door to us. We designed and built a house to enable her to successfully age in place, receive care at home if need be. But, you know, it was totally okay for my mom to ask me to change my schedule with my work and try to juggle running my own firm and raising my son and my responsibilities to take care of her. Let's go back. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. I I just wanted to make sure. So we try to go back to that timeline. So what year-ish doesn't have to be perfect? Would the minor heart attack have happened? She was, yeah, I was... 27 and in grad school and my mom was 67. And what year was your son born? 99, two years later. 99. Okay. So yeah. that was a, so she had the heart, heart attack and started having some needs. And then a couple of years later you had your son. Right. And then you mentioned actually building the home and moving her closer to you. So up until that point, y'all were still a five hour drive away. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Okay. And then about what year did she move in with you or move in next to you guys? It was, I think, 2011 or 2012, something around then. And it was really interesting because for several years before we had said to her, you know, why don't you move up here? We'll either build a house for you or we'll modify a house for you. My husband was a custom home builder for 30 years. And she really was in a very lucky position to have a custom home builder son-in-law and a daughter who was an expert in design for elders. And we kept looking at places and she didn't like them or I, I think some of it, she wasn't ready to make the change. You know, she she was living alone, right? She was living alone. She had moved from my childhood home into an apartment in the same community. And she really loved that community. She felt out of all the places that she lived in the U.S., that was really her home. And, but living there for almost 40 years, things change, you know, the community changes. And a lot of her friends were a few years older or a few years younger, and they were passing away if you moved away. But what finally made her comfortable with moving was probably fate. So my husband and I had been planning to build a new home for our family. And I found a plot of land that had recently been subdivided into three building lots. And we were buying one for ourselves. And we told my mom about the others. And she said, no, thank you. And then a few weeks later, I called her to have a visit. And we talked for a long time about all kinds of things. And just as I was about to hang up the phone, she said, I'm ready to build a house next to you because I fell and broke my wrist. And she was really lucky. It was a hairline fracture. It was no big deal, but it was a wake up call. 
And so can that, you, that made the change. Tell me the logistics of this, like who actually ended up buying the lot and the house? Like, how did you have that conversation? What kind of resource sharing was there? That's a big deal. I mean, it's one thing to move somebody into your house for like a spare bedroom. It's another thing to build a new building of its own single family home. Uh, what did that look like? So if I remember correctly, I think my husband's firm purchased the entire parcel that was three building plots or lots. And, and then my mother purchased from the company the land and contracted to build the house. Okay, good. So you didn't have a, a big discussion about cost sharing with you and your sister or anything like that. So she had the resources to right to build. Right. That's great. Okay. She had she had the resources. You know, she was selling her apartment and she had other funds. So she was very fortunately, and you're absolutely right. Not everybody is in that situation, but she was financially independent. So when you decided, or the thought, I guess you always had this thought growing up that she, you would eventually end up taking care of her. But when you had this thought that you wanted her to move closer, what percent was that you missed her? You wanted to spend more time with her. And what percent was practicality that it was really difficult being five hours away from somebody that you felt responsible for caring about? That's a really I told you I'd ask you a really tough question. <laughs> it's a really tough question. So, you know, my dynamic with my mom was, my mom was the kind of person, really sadly, that she viewed herself as a perpetual victim. And a big part of the dynamic of our relationship was that she would misinterpret things I would say or do as being negative against her. And the same went for other people. And for as long as I can remember, whenever she would share a situation with me and explain how she was snubbed by a friend or a cashier or a healthcare provider, whatever it was, whoever it was. And I would say, well, you know, maybe that's not what they meant because I always saw another possibility. Um, in a lot of cases, it didn't seem to me like they were doing anything offensive. And whenever I did this, my mother would get angry. And she would say, you're taking their side. You always take their side. And this is a really th important issue to bring up because how do you take care of somebody and make sacrifices in your own life? And how do, do somebody like that be comfortable in the role of being dependent. It, it really, really complicates caregiving from all angles. So to get back to your question about what percentage was it that I missed her, we had a, we, we very, we were very clearly very fond of each other. We loved each other. We were very close, but it was a very, difficult relationship. There was often a lot of anger and tears. And it, I realized, you know, when you say with your question, how much of it was that you missed your mom? I realized recently in speaking with a bereavement counselor that I'm working with through hospice, that I was always missing the relationship that I never had with my mom or that I only had in, in bits and pieces. And, you know, we were saying, my husband and I were saying for years, move up here and be closer to us. Not only can we help you, but you can be a part of our lives. Your world is shrinking, your friends are dying or moving, and 
why don't you move up and, and you can see us more often. And when she moved up, I remember early on, she was sitting in our living room. I can actually picture the scene. And my husband said to her, oh, you know, you could come over for dinner like every Sunday, something like that. And, and my mother said, no, I want my privacy. I like to be alone. And but then what we were seeing were things like if I if I didn't go to her house for two days, when I went, the greeting was, where have you been? And that's when she lived next to you, right? And that's when she lived next. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for me, in terms of how much of it was practicality, a lot of it was practicality. I mean, through my expertise and just being somebody who tends to be a planner, all I had to do was look at my situation that my mother had with my grandmother and be like, we have to be prepared for this. I think it was when I graduated undergraduate because my mom was around 62 or 63 then. I was in my early 20s. And I said to her, you know, I have this expertise related to aging. And I know the last resort is that you that you go to move to a facility. But why don't we talk about the different scenarios? Why don't we plan for things? And she put up her hand and she said, I do not have one foot in the grave yet. And that was the end of the discussion for almost 20 years. How, how did she, you mentioned, you know, if you hadn't been over in a couple of days that she'd say, where have you been? How would you characterize in general how she received your support, care, attention, time? So we have a joke in our family about my mom. My mom was born in mid-June. And so her um, astrological sign is Gemini. And we would say to her, okay, mom, can you bring out the other twin who said the exact opposite thing yesterday? <laughs> so, you know, my mom was really at her core, a very loving and caring and appreciative person. But I think because she was so wounded, a lot of times she didn't know how to not come from a place of defensiveness and pain. So her reactions to being helped varied. You know, there, there were quite a few times where she would say that how grateful she was to me and my husband and my son um, for all that we did. But there was also a lot of resentment and I think some of the resentment is normal. You know, how do you reconcile that throughout your life, you're becoming more and more independent and you have greater responsibilities of people at work and in your personal life being dependent on you. And then you start to move into a phase where not only does that go away, but you shift to being dependent on other people again. It's not easy. Right, right. And and you talked earlier about your sister. How did that relationship change or did it once your mom moved in or moved next to you? I would say that it changed in in that we saw less of my sister because we didn't travel down to Long Island as much or if we did we went to the part of Long Island where my husband's family was and not where my sister was. And my mother really stopped traveling because it was really hard for her to sit in a car and get in and out of a car. So, and the one way my sister supported me was through texting. You know, she gave me a lot of emotional support through texting. So I'm grateful for that. And in terms of my mom, you know, my mom was really odd with my sister. My sister would 
there were periods where my sister would call her and my mom would be like, I don't want to talk on the phone, you know, send me an email. And then if my sister sent her an email and it was only a few lines, my mom would be upset that she didn't tell her more. And so I, I think there were a lot of things going on. I think there was, like I said earlier, but not using the, this terminology, I, definitely my mother had post-traumatic stress disorder significantly. I think she had um, significant periods of depression. And at some point she was developing vascular dementia. And I would say also throughout much of this, trying to remember what year it was that she stuck. I would say in like 2014 or 15, maybe she finally stopped drinking. So all of these issues really affected how she interacted with us and of course how we interacted with her it, it sounds like if you set out to not only have this master designed home and the history of your grandmother going into a facility there eventually came a day it sounds like you said about a year before she ended up passing away that she did have to move into a facility can you tell me about how that decision was made, how she reacted to it, what that looked like? Yes. So in February of 2020, we looked at moving my mom to assisted living because my husband was just starting treatment for cancer. And before we could have a serious discussion with my mom, March 2020, came around and everything shut down due to COVID. And for me, it was very challenging because I had been looking at moving my mom to assisted living because I thought, how can I do everything? How can I do my work uh, I had two major projects at that time that were long-term projects. How can I care for my husband? We had no idea how well he was going to do with the treatment, how much he was going to be affected. And we, you know, and there was my mom to take care of. And because of COVID, I had to let go the aide who was coming twice a week, who helped me care for my mom because I was so afraid of her accidentally, you know, unknowingly bringing COVID into the house and infecting my mom. And then I, I didn't know how I would care for my mom because I couldn't go care for her if my husband was immunocompromised and concerns about him also contracting it. So by the grace of God, my son's college, like many, closed at that time. And he came home and he was an amazing help. But, and then fortunately, my husband responded very well to treatment. He did not have terrible side effects. I mean, he was affected, but and then he was starting the road to recovery. And eventually as things improved with COVID people becoming vaccinated and more, more information about how to handle it, we once again started having AIDS come to help take care of her. And then in... November of 20, my mother called me one morning that she really felt terrible and something was wrong. And I went over and her, her, she was having increased difficulty breathing. Her temperature spiked 
um, it jumped from like 101 to 104 in less than an hour. I called visiting nurse services because at that time, in addition to having an aide coming once or twice a week, visiting nurse services was coming twice a month for medical checkups. And I called them, but I also tried increasing her oxygen. I gave her a nebulizer treatment and they helped a little bit, but not enough. So we called an ambulance. She was taken to the emergency room. Of course, I couldn't go in because there were still significant precautions for COVID. And it turned out that it was not COVID um, as I was suspecting, but she had bacteremia she had a, a blood infection in her lungs and in her blood. Um, and she spent about four weeks in the hospital and then two weeks in rehabilitation facility, finally coming home in late December of 2021. And then, you know, through the holidays and January with visiting nurse services coming in this and that. It was like, there were times where we weren't just in like the immediate crisis mode and realizing that increasingly what we were doing for her wasn't enough, but it was too much for us, especially me. I mean, I was feeling for years like I can't do this anymore. I can't take this anymore. And I just kept doing it because I had the responsibility and commitment to her and I didn't really know what else to do or how to do things differently. What was the defining factor in that? So what about January of 20? This would have been 2022. Yes. January was different. 20. Yeah. What, what, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? So I, I, I put it in slightly different terms. It wasn't like there was a major event where it was like enough already. I, cause I, I had, I had been feeling that way, unfortunately for years. And of course there's terrible guilt that goes along with that. But my husband and I have um, a very dear friend who is like a brother to us who had moved from New York State to North Carolina maybe eight, 10 years prior and kept encouraging us to move down. And we were really interested in doing that. And it, but it was always like, okay, in the future, you know, when our son graduates from college, when this, when that. And finally, February of 2022, my husband and I took a trip to North Carolina for some business reasons. And then when we came back, we looked at each other and said, you know, our son's graduating from college in May. Like we could move this year. And we were struggling too with the fact that even though we were working with a great home health care agency, we were not, we couldn't rely on the AIDS. And because I have my own business and I have a good deal of control over my own schedule, when the agency would call me and say, tomorrow the aide can't come or like, oh, the aide who's supposed to come this afternoon can't come. They would say, can, you know, do, would you like us to find somebody else? I would say no, because I knew that the agency was serving people who had no one. And if I needed to, I could step in and help my mom. But it was just all of these factors coming at once, me realizing I can't take this anymore. It's not good for my mental health and my physical health 
And it's way too much for me. It's not nearly enough for my mom. You know, my mom was needing not only somebody every day for some assistance, she just, she needed to be in a more supportive setting. Her, her schedule was for years was completely, I would say non-existent. She really would have benefited from more structure. So that was, we, you said, you know, maybe now is the time. And then we spoke to a few realtors about selling our house and they were like, the market is completely nuts now. It's the best time possible to sell a house. And we put our house on the market and within a few days we were under contract. So all of these things, all these factors came together to be that tipping point. Okay. So then you had some stars aligned that you had a friend that was encouraging you to move to a place that sounds like you wanted to move to mom's needs were more um, than they had been before and no signs, right. That that was going to relent. And so it sounds like, like with most complex decisions, it was a constellation of different things kind of coming together. Was her cognition at that point, something where she argued with you about going into a facility or how did that look? Yeah. So that is a really important question. So her her cognition was an issue more that the vascular dementia and probably a buildup of CO2 in her system was impacting things. She was in a phase during that period where she became very suspicious and she was suspicious of my husband and verbally attacking him and, and then became so of me which I cannot articulate how incredibly painful that was because the amount of sacrifice we had gave, given. And, and actually, you know, one thing is that through providing so much care for her and services that had we not been living next door, she would have had to pay for, we subsidized her care. And so she was, she was very suspicious. However, to our complete shock, when we talked to her about moving at that point, she was very positive about it. She got excited. She was looking forward to it. And we were, we were stunned. You know, there had been some issues before where we had been talking about it for years and she would say things like that I was going to move without her, either, either from a place of accusation or just a place of like, well, of course you'd move without me. And my response always was, of course, we would never move without you. You know, we wouldn't leave you here by yourself. Even if you were in a facility, you were moving with us. We need to be there to assist you. We need to check in. We need to visit you and so on. So she was surprisingly very, very positive. And the way we selected a facility was we searched online and narrowed it down. And then my husband had another business trip to the region. And he went and he visited the, th the three facilities. And then we gave my mom information. She looked at the websites. You know, I have to say she was quite amazing for somebody who grew up without an indoor bathroom and English was her second language. She could use the internet. She could use her computer. So she explored the websites we gave her information about all three places and each of us independently came to our first choice. And fortunately, we all had the same first choice. So the decision-making was easy. And she was very excited to move and moved in the day before her 92nd birthday. 
that on her 92nd birthday, they made a lovely party for her. She was delighted. And then over the weekend, the first thing went wrong. And after that, she had nothing but bad things to say about the facility. And was this an assisted living or a skilled nursing facility? It was assisted living. Assisted living. Okay. Did she end up going to skilled nursing or she stayed in assisted living? She stayed in assisted living. but Until I, she passed away. Yeah, she did. And I have to tell you, I was terrified that she would have to go to skilled nursing or that she would have to move up to memory care for a variety of reasons. One is, as, as you know, Rebecca, we do not have enough healthcare providers and especially aides working in senior care. And many of the people who work in senior care as nurses, med techs, aides, what, however they're working are extremely dedicated, but um, there just aren't enough people and um, they are, they're really struggling. So that was one issue. Another issue was I was managing my mom's money and I was terrified that by having to move to a different facility, we would double the amount that we were paying in a month, which would mean she'd run out of money sooner. And most importantly, I was terrified at the impact it would have on my mother's heart. I mean, her soul, like that she just would be beside herself by that move. What what did she eventually pass away from? So it was a combination of things. She had COPD, congestive heart disease. She had severe sleep apnea that was not treated because she couldn't tolerate wearing a CPAP. She felt she felt she was really being strangled by it. And so there was a buildup of fluid in her body. Her, her legs were extremely swollen. Her buildup of CO2 in her system so that she was having terrible hallucinations and she was having trouble breathing. And she went into the hospital on a Thursday night and was treated with intravenous Lasix and a BiPAP machine, which began making a difference right away. And every day she improved, but they would also pull back on her oxygen treatments, like kept stepping things down. And after two and a half days, what we started to see was she started to deteriorate. And at first it was deterioration like we had seen in similar ways in the past, but then it was getting worse. And eventually she was not responsive. But I have to say those five, six days she was in the hospital. And of course I was there every day, almost all day. It was a gift for both of us. I don't know if this happens with a lot of people before they die, but a cousin recently told me that something simple, similar happened with her mother. But when my, when my mom was in the hospital, it was as if God had removed all the layers of defensiveness, all the wounds that caused her pain and that caused her to often struggle to interact with people. And there was just her pure loving soul, you know, which I had fortunately seen throughout my life, but it was so hard because that was not the only 
side of her I saw. But during that week, she was just so loving and and so caring. And like like every other hospitalization, she would always ask the staff, how are you doing? But there was no negative behaviors, no anger, no nothing. She was just pure loving energy. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That that's a positive touch to the of what is a normally a very difficult time. And it sounds like you've had enough time to look back and reflect on that. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the adjustment phase. I know you're in the thick of it and maybe too premature to talk more deeply about that, but if you had to pick two or three kind of lessons learned about the adjustment phase to share with someone who is either about to enter it or worried about that phase or not even thinking that there is a phase. Uh, can you talk about that? So I think, I think I'm in a phase where I'm doing pretty well. The two months following my mom's death were really, really difficult. I, because of the grief, I was not sleeping at night. And so I wasn't doing very well during the day. I didn't have a lot of emotion. I had a lot, I was like in a fog kind of. And I think part of it was that the last few years of her life were so emotional. Some of the things I learned I learned this too when I was caring for my husband and my mom at the same time and during COVID. I don't know, I had this concept in mind like from movies and TV shows and books that when you're going through a hard time, people show up with casseroles and people offer to help you. And I know I've done it in my life to help other people probably could have done it more, but I was really very hurt and struggled with the lack of support from anyone. There were a couple of people who offered support emotionally, but I had one neighbor and, you know, and I'm new to this area. We moved, had moved here seven months before my mom passed, but I quickly made friends and it's a very friendly neighborhood. And one friend offered to buy groceries for me and did. Another friend surprised me with a bouquet of flowers on one day. But other than that, no one, no one helped. And, you know, in this day and age, when you can sign somebody up for meal plans or do a lot of things long distance. So I was really surprised. It was really nice in the beginning to get beautiful flower arrangements, but I can't eat a flower arrangement. I couldn't feed my husband a flower arrangement. <laughs> you know, I flower arrangement doesn't bring groceries to my doorstep and things like that. So for two months, I was really struggling because I wasn't sleeping and I didn't feel well mentally and physically. And the pain of losing my mom was just amplified by this isolation and loneliness. What would good support have looked like? You know, there's some expression about when somebody is going through a hard time, don't say to them, um, you know, let me know if you need help. I think a lot of us, especially as women, are told and raised not to ask for what we need, like it's selfish or greedy. And I, I know you know, that was part of my upbringing. But also when you're struggling with caregiving or you're struggling with grief, 
a lot of times you have no idea what you need or you don't have the energy to ask for help. So it would have looked like people showing up with food. Which um, people? Friends, family, neighbors. It would have looked like friends and family long distance sending food. You know, I think, yeah, I, I, to me, I think food is a big, big aspect because it's just, it, one, it's how we show that we care. And I think it's also a relatively easy thing. So like probably, I mean, I've offered to friends when they were in difficult situations, I've said, I will come and clean your house, you know, but a lot of people are not comfortable receiving that kind of care, but receiving some groceries, receiving a casserole, receiving a gift certificate for takeout or meal subscription or something like that. I think food would have been a really big thing. And the other thing is that don't expect the person who is struggling to reach out. You know, for me, when, when my, I was caring for my husband and my mom, not during the worst of it, but when I, things were a little better, but I was still caring for both of them and there was still COVID, you know, when my mom died, there were people I heard from once maybe twice. And then I didn't hear from them again. I don't know who really knows that I was here suffering so much, you know, physically sick for two months. So this is going to be really unfair and we can edit this out, but I think this right. is what my audience will expect of the podcast is to kind of walk through some of these things. Yeah. So what do you feel when you think the thought nobody showed up for me, nobody brought food. What's the one feeling that comes up? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, to some extent, I feel like a, I can say, I feel like a victim, like my mom did. I feel, I feel isolation. And, you know, from a practical perspective, you can say, well, you should have reached out to people. You should have voiced your need. But I think the, the, point is that when you're going through these difficult situations, and I had this with caregiving also, you're, you don't have the bandwidth to, to wave that white flag. And, you know, Rebecca, I shared a poem with you about this. And there was a part of the poem that I, I wrote to deal with these feelings. And there was a part of the poem where I said something like, you know, you said, if I need anything, I should let you know, but how can you expect somebody who's choking to ask for help? I hear you. And, uh, and I want to make sure I, I talk about, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I think this is part of that conversation. So I, I, my next question would be, if your brain had uh, a multiple choice and option A was someone brought us groceries, which it sounds like they did. Someone brought us flowers, which they did. Someone checked in with me, which they did. Or option two, which is it wasn't enough or they didn't or nobody did this. How does your brain pick option one or option two? How does it or which one does it pick? How did it pick option two? It picked option two because when you taught the period of grief, like separate from the caregiving, which was years, but the period of grief, which was two months, getting groceries once in a two month period is not enough when you're really struggling. Receiving flowers is beautiful. And I don't want anyone to think that they didn't bring me a lot of joy. But after the flowers die, after a couple of weeks, there are still weeks of struggling. So that's, and that, and that's how it's not enough. It just, I mean, I, I there were 
it's, you know, if I'm, if I'm struggling to feed myself three meals a day and, you know, or, or even get out of the house to get groceries, it's clearly not enough. So one of my, one of my interests is the brain mechanics of how people develop stress. And it sounds like there is a, a delta or a gap between how you feel like the world should have responded to your grief and how it actually responded to your grief. And my question is what built the expectation of response? Was it that you put a lot into the world and so you want to have it reciprocate or is it a cultural thing where you feel like from your culture, people bring food if there's um, Mm -hmm. a grief process or where do you think that came from? Yeah, that that's an excellent question. And you hit on a lot of things. So there's, there's many. So one expectation was food was a huge part of our family. My mother was an amazing cook and, but also my mother was very generous with feeding people. She loved to feed people. She loved to show people care and support through food. I remember when I was maybe seven, eight, nine years old, our house was being painted and the painting crew were all refugees from El Salvador. And boy, could my mother relate. And she cooked all morning a beautiful lunch for them. And then we all sat down together and had lunch. And that that is probably one of the reasons that food is a big deal. And then I grew up to, that food was a big part of showing my care and love for friends and family. But I also had things like, you know, I've had friends say to me before this happened, or, and even when it happened, if you need anything, let me know. Or if the relationship changed and became closer, like your family now. So if you need anything, you know, we're here for you. Well, they weren't. And in all fairness, everyone has problems. And we're in a period now where everyone is still struggling from the effects of the pandemic. So, you know, I, I, I can know that, but at the same time, I, you know, my, my bereavement counselor has taught me that multiple things can be true at once. And you can hold this feeling on one side and you can hold this feeling on the other side. And, you know, to bring it back to the origins of this conversation, I think that really is an important paradigm to have with caregiving because caregiving, you can have what seem like conflicting beliefs and emotions at the same time. So, you know, some of this has been a process for me to recognize that, like you said, that the gap between expectations and reality and some of my expectations were cultural. Some of my expectations were people literally said that they would help me but I think the key was if I asked, but I, you know, I, it's hard for me to reconcile if, if I know that your mom died or someone in your family died, would I be waiting for you to ask for help? You know, I don't know. So I'm trying not to, I'm trying to let go of any pain and frustration I feel and know that people that I had thought would help me love me, even though they didn't meet my needs at that time. And, you know, my husband was an incredible source of support. My son from miles away was... Uh, My sister was supportive emotionally, and I had friends who came in and out who were supportive, but 
but it, it the bottom line was it, it wasn't enough. And a lot of people um, weren't checking in and saying, what do you need? Do you need food? Do you need this? Um, and I, I think one of the reasons it also upsets me is not, not only my personal situation, but I'm, I would expect that there are many people who have had the similar experience and I'd like to shine a light on this so that maybe we can all be more direct in offering assistance. I thank you so much for being open and candid and vulnerable to discuss that. As we wrap up here, can you think of any words of advice, lessons learned, kind of some salient tips or insights that you might be able to share with our audience? Yes, most definitely. I actually prepared a list of things. So one is that caregiving can be a very lonely experience. I I was reading on a caregiving website recently that caregiving is a gift. And I know that one concept of that, it's a gift that you give to another person, but it could also be the gift of experience. And for a lot of people who are providing care or receiving care, it's not a gift. It's a very uncomfortable, practically challenging, sometimes financially challenging and an emotionally challenging experience that often goes on for years. And it's really hard to predict the path. So it's, it's very, very challenging. I know that I also experienced a lot of guilt. I felt like if I chose myself over my mother's needs, I was being selfish. And then I learned an expression, which I, I didn't do the best job applying, but this expression was, if you do what's best for you, it will be best for them. And I, I wish I had understood that earlier. And I think what it would have looked like for me was being much less, for lack of a better word, accommodating to my mother's needs in terms of my schedule and and maybe getting her more care if, if it was available, which is a whole nother conversation. I think another thing is that I would really invite people who are in positions to help, and I'm not talking about friends and family now, healthcare providers, employers, to ask people, how are you doing? And have specific services and sources of information to connect a person with. There were very few times where I was asked how I was doing by my mom's practitioners or even by my husband's doctors. And and the other thing that I would recommend is as soon as you can, before you start the caregiving journey or if you're in the midst of it, stop and think about what the roles are. If you are the caregiver or you're the care recipient, what are the roles and having somebody help you define what those roles are for you, what you want them to be, whether it's a, a case manager or a physician or a clergy, someone from the clergy. Because one thing that I really struggled with and my mother really struggled with was that I was both her daughter and her caregiver. And she really resented when I was telling her, well, you can't do that or you have to do this because the doctors told you she didn't want that, but yet she needed it. 
you know, and she had chosen me for that role, but she resented it. And I struggled with being in that role and trying to be a daughter to her. And with so much stress of being the one who was trying to get her to comply and often like rushing in to pick up the pieces because she didn't comply, it was very hard for me to just be a daughter. Another issue is caregiving is challenging enough, but when there are mental health issues, I think it's important to ask who can help. I really recommend that people make a plan for caregiving. And even if the other parties won't participate in creating that plan and also setting a reminder in your calendar to review it regularly, maybe quarterly, because in my case, I often didn't evaluate things unless there was an outside situation that forced me to. And then you tend to be in crisis mode and you tend to right, be reacting. Right, right. And, and then the last thing is as much as you are able, and again, it, for people who are outside of caregiving or outside of grief, it's really hard. You have to recognize that people are often not in the headspace to ask for help, but anybody who is struggling with caregiving or struggling with grief, as much as you are capable, ask for help and or delegate. I think that's a great list. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for tolerating my million questions and sharing with our audience. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I just really appreciate you being here, talking, sharing with everyone. I know you're still in that acute grief phase. And I think it's a really important insight that you added here. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. And thank you for this podcast because caregiving is a really difficult situation for many people. And we really need to be talking about it and help each other. So thank you for serving that important role. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks.